0: So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who had went up for worship at the festivals. They came to Philip who was from Bethesda in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Blessed be the reading of God's word.
1: All right. So this morning we're going to talk about surprises. Pretty good day for that, I think. Surprise is one of the greatest gifts of human life, of the human experience. So my daughters are sitting here, and we had a science fair this week at their school. And Nora's class, who's my first grader, their class did the five senses. So they set up these stations: smell, sight, hearing touch and then they did a taste test where the parents were to close their eyes and they were to put something in our mouth and we had to guess what it was now all right I closed my eyes open my mouth and Nora puts this thing in my mouth and what did my face do And I said, oh no, that's a pickle. And if there's anything I never order at a restaurant, please give me the hamburger with cheese and tomatoes and lettuce, please no pickle. And what did she put in my mouth? She put the pickle in my mouth. So thank you. I'm reminded anew, because I hadn't had pickles in a long time. I still don't like pickles. Surprise, surprise, Daddy, you got a pickle in your mouth. But surprise really is one of the greatest experiences of life, and if you were to sit and reflect on surprises that you've had, it's not hard to to see how surprise works in our life. I mean, it really begins from the beginning of life, and if you've been paying attention the last few years, there's a few younger folks here that would get this one, but if you're having a baby these days, one of the cultural things you have to do is have a gender reveal party, and then you post it on your, your social media, and it's either gonna be pink or blue, and it's a big deal, it's a surprise. Sometimes the parents know in advance, sometimes they don't know in advance, but you pop a balloon and it turns to color, or you swing a baseball bat and hit something, and all of a sudden you know whether it's gonna be a boy or a girl. And I think about you know, some little kids here, playing um, you know, playing peekaboo with a child. It's all about surprise. Think of the joy on the face of a one-year-old child who gets to eat chocolate for the first time on their first birthday, just lights up. Um, Or my favorite is the Jack in the Box, where you ever seen someone do the Jack in the Box for the very first time when they don't know what's coming? We have great videos of our two kids, slow motion videos where their face just goes totally different. Um, here's the thing about Easter Sunday and surprises. You guys have done the jack in the box enough. You know that the thing's going to pop out and you know, when you come to church on Easter Sunday, what's the surprise Christ is risen. He's risen indeed, right? That's the surprise. So I'm not going to necessarily dwell on what the surprise is today. I'm going to dwell on from this text, particularly why the surprise loses its luster and so, just like after you do Jack in the Box, 5, 10, 15, 100, 500, 1,000 times, it loses its joy, or chocolate for that matter, or any surprise. Maybe chocolate does it for some of you. <laughs> but surprises, when you hear them over and over, or you experience it over and over, over time, they're not a surprise anymore, and they lose the luster of what they are. And so I I actually did some some Googling this week and found TED Talks on the power of surprise in the world today. And they're fascinating. I really encourage you to look up, just from a, a common cultural society perspective, the power of surprise in our human experience. So again, this sermon series that we've been doing throughout Lent, which we're wrapping up today on true spirituality... The goal has been to take cultural values, things that everybody in our society would say those are good, valuable things, and then show how the cross of Jesus brings truth and beauty and fullness to those values. And so today, that value is surprise. But just let me give you a couple of things about what these TED Talks said about surprise. Um, you know, One of them was looking at it from a business perspective. And he talks about going into this coffee shop in Paris which he thought was just a random obscure coffee shop and he ordered a latte and took a sip of it and he said, that's the best latte I've ever tasted in my entire life. So he begins talking with the coffee shop owner and he discovers that it's actually been rated the number one coffee shop in Paris. He didn't know that when he walked in and when he took the sip of the latte, but he was taken by surprise by how amazing it was. But from a business perspective, he says surprises usually are bad things. If any of you have been in business, maybe the last thing you want in a business is surprise. And so he says businesses have been trained to hate surprises to the point where he says if you look up management books that have to deal with surprising things in business, 100% of the time, the ones he found, 100% of the time they're dealing with negative surprises. He said, so the power of positive surprise in business has just been totally lost. And he said, but if you could capture what I experienced in that coffee shop and transfer it into your business, then you're onto something, because that's good business. There's another woman who gave a talk. She calls herself a surpriseologist, which I think she made that up. I don't think that's a thing. I don't think you can be a surpriseologist. But she says, we have to let surprise happen. I think the world is changing faster than ever before. Our future is this one giant, big question mark and it's racing straight at our feet. If we try to run from it, it'll eat us alive. This is something we can't control. We can't predict all of life, so we have to learn faster. We have to think more flexibly. We have to respond to the surprises that happen, but we also have to become producers of surprise. I think this is what our future will need not the expected. And I think Christianity is the curator of the best surprise that life can offer. And that's why Easter Sunday draws us. That's why spring draws us. Because even though you expect it, there's still that little glimmer of something in us that is longing for the surprise, longing for the hope to flare up in our life and longing for this to be true. So this woman, her name is uh, Tina Luna, she suggests three strategies of how to bring about surprise more often in your everyday life. And I'm gonna kind of follow her pattern today through John 12 and say, okay, let's try this, let's try this ourselves. First strategy is interrupt your patterns. Interrupt your patterns. Second strategy, stretch the wonder in your life. Stretch the wonder. And then the third strategy Create spaces in your life where anything can happen. She says, if you do those three things, you're going to have more surprises in your life. And she says, your life will be better for it. The surprise today is the resurrection of Jesus. He's no longer in the grave, he's defeated sin and death, he's reigning victoriously in heaven over all things. All things have been subjected under his feet. He is victorious. That is the -the jack-in-the-box surprise today. But how do we let the power of the surprise of the resurrection into our daily lives going forward? I think that's intriguing. I had a really fun time this week pressing this in my own life. And so let's jump in. So open up to John 12 if you have a Bible, if you have your bulletin insert. It'll be on the screen from time to time, I'm sure, as well. But this passage in John 12 is actually from before the resurrection. It's actually maybe more of a Palm Sunday text. It's really towards the beginning of Holy Week. But as I was telling Donna yesterday, this is kind of a forward look at what the resurrection will be. Jesus is telling his disciples this is what the resurrection is. So point number one, the power of interruption in your life. Remember our lady said, interrupt your patterns so the first point here today is the power of interruption. Jesus has interrupted the pattern of this world. And you can see it right from the beginning in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Why? Because look, the whole world has gone after him. How do you, how do you react to interruptions? I mentioned earlier, we have children in the service today, so if they scream or yell, like how am I gonna react to interruptions, right? And as a church, we have a value for children, so we don't care. (laughs) But I still may give a look. if If I'm really trying to say an important point and they scream at the wrong time, I still may be taken off by that because interruptions can be frustrating. They can step into your life. They can be unwelcome for us. But surprises are inherently interruptions. They interrupt your life. And in fact, interruptions are almost always the things that end up changing your life. The big things in life always kind of come at you as an interruption. They're very rarely something you can plan for. Usually the best things that happen in life are things that come out of the side. So when it says the world has gone after him, you know, we have to realize that what the Pharisees were seeing was all these people had begun to gather in Jerusalem for the week of Passover So all these nations, all these people came around to gather for this big festival. So there were a lot of cultures, a lot of ethnicities, a lot of different types of folks that were around. And the Pharisees were expecting them to come to them to listen to their great teaching. And then here's this Jesus of Nazareth who had really kind of begun to annoy them by this point. And they're all going after him. They gravitated towards Jesus. He had this alluring, captivating, magnetic way to him. He became the passion of the people during Passion Week, you could say. And in fact, that's, the Bible talks a ton, especially the New Testament talks a ton about how Jesus stepped into the world and interrupted the ordinary pattern of what was going on. In the book of Ephesians, it says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out those desires. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. mankind. And then the next verse says, but God, rich in mercy, steps in. He interrupts the pattern of this world. When God stepped into the world in the person of Jesus, through the womb of Virgin Mary, it says he stepped in at just the right time. Galatians says, and the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Romans 5 says, while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's a pattern of the world. And when God sends Jesus in the form of this baby that we celebrate at Christmas, and he grows and he begins his ministry He interrupts the pattern of what everything else was happening in the world. God in the flesh, drawing and reconciling all people to himself and starting this new creation process. Taking little bits of heaven and dropping them along with every person he meets, every person he heals, every teaching he does, every miracle he performs. He's bringing new creation, interrupting the pattern of death, of old law. Ever since Genesis 3, when things had gone astray, there had been a pattern of the world. Jesus interrupted it. And so in verse 20, it says, there were some who came up to worship at the feast who were Greeks. Now, why is that noteworthy? Because Passover is a Jewish festival. And yet here are these Greeks who were coming up, who had come to worship God. They had come to understand the God of the Torah, the God of the Bible in Jerusalem, and they came up to worship him too. And the world at large was coming to see Jesus. When it says Greeks, that's not like modern day people from Greece, like we think about it. Greeks were people throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout the Roman Empire who spoke Greek. That's who Greeks were. And so these are people from so many nations coming together, and those are the ones who are also going to Jesus, not just the Jews, not just the God-fearers, but the nations, people from all these different tribes. We need to realize on a day like today that there is a global movement of people following Jesus beyond just white middle-class Western people. In fact, white middle-class Western people are the vast minority. Christianity is not a white man religion. It is a global phenomenon, 2.5 billion Christians in the world. Let me just give you a couple of statistics just to kind of bring this home, because this is, this is the, the degree to which Jesus has interrupted the world. Sometimes in a place like Salem, you know, maybe we're the minority, we feel like we're weird because we're at a church or we're, because we're Christians, but Jesus has interrupted the course of the whole world. Nine of the 10 countries with the most evangelical Christians or gospel-believing Christians in 2020 are in the Global South, meaning South America, Africa, East Asia. The United States is the only outlier. It's the only country in the Global North on the list. If trends continue, more than half of all gospel-believing Christians in the year 2050 will be Africans. If the world were 100 Christians, so like if you were to like boil the world down to 100 Christians and say, okay, what are, what's the global church like if you were to put it in 100? 67 would live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, or Oceania. Well, only 33 would live in Europe or North America. 65 would be found in urban areas as opposed to the rural. In terms of language, 16 would speak Spanish ten would speak english eight would speak portuguese five russian and three mandarin chinese 64 would be between the ages of 15 and 64 while 26 percent would be under the age of 15. 11 would be illiterate 35 would have little to no access to secondary education roughly half of christians would have access to the internet so that's 50 50. would have malaria. 79 would live in countries with moderate to high corruption. 35 would live in countries with low development. To sum it up, a typical Christian today is a non-white woman living in the global south with lower than average levels of societal safety and proper health care. That represents a vastly different typical Christian than that of 100 years ago, who was likely a white affluent European. Do you see how God has interrupted all segments of the world, of society, of races, of languages, of, of, of economic levels, of societal prestige? Jesus has somehow found a way to speak power and life into all those different types of people. That's an interruption. And so in verse 21, these Greeks, they come up, they find Philip, who's the only Greek uh, out of the disciples. They come up to Philip and they say, Sir, we wish, to see, we wish to see Jesus. We want to see this Jesus who we've heard about. Can you tell us, can you introduce us to him? There was a pastor who, um, I, can't, I forget where it was, but he used to have on his pulpit, a little placard kind of right on the top where he could see it all the time. So when he got up to preach and the placard would say, we wish to see Jesus. It was his reminder that the people who are sitting in the pews like you are now, they don't want the pastor's cool illustrations or funny stories or witty insights or seminary education. They want Jesus Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I don't know what's drawn you to this place this morning. I really don't, unless you tell me. I don't know why you're here. But part of it, part of it is, I think, that expression. I wish to see Jesus in some way. That is the desire of all of our hearts. We are longing for something, longing to be surprised again. And so that's that's why you came this morning, is to see Jesus, and I pray that you do today. So that's the power of interruption. The second point that Our Lady gave to us was be stretched, be stretched into wonder. I think what she means by that is the world is a, is a, a magnificent place. There's wonderful things happening all around us, but... You and I know that we get trapped into the mundane, ordinary rhythms of life, and we kind of lose the ability to see the wonder in the world sometimes. And so we have to be stretched into it. To be stretched means that something else has to do it to you. You know, I could wake up like I did this morning and you know, stretch and crack my back and all this stuff and kind of get my body ready for the day, which feels pretty good. I just did it right then too. Like it, I can do that for myself. I can stretch myself and kind of get myself in gear But to be stretched by something else means to be challenged or to be provoked or to be pushed into something that may be uncomfortable. So if you want to use the physical analogy, some people have personal trainers who actually help them with stretching because they can do things you can't do on your own. They can get your body to contort in ways that are good, I guess. I've never had a personal trainer. but. But to be stretched involves someone inviting you into something that maybe you didn't plan to do yourself teaching you something that maybe you otherwise thought was ridiculous or far-fetched or just maybe just maybe too good for you to believe. Jesus has stretched us into seeing the wonder of the world again. Jesus in verse 23 says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's his response to the nations wanting to come see him. He says, because the nations want to come see me, that means my time is coming. He's drawing all people to himself. And he begins to give this counterintuitive way of seeing the purpose of his life and his death. And he uses the analogy of the grain of wheat that when you put it into the ground, it has to die in order for it to bring forth fruit and growth and beauty, which I'm not a gardener. But in the little bit of research I've done about gardening and planting is that seems to be true. A dormant seed has to go into the ground and surrounded by the right things in order for it to bring forth life. Not everybody is convinced of that, that death has to lead to life. I don't think you and I probably on our average day during the week probably believe that. We probably think that life leads to life. You know. Feel, feel great about things, build up yourself, do things that are pouring life into you, and that's what will help you grow. Jesus says death is what leads to life. Jeff Bezos is one guy, though, who uh, he, he's on a quest for eternal life. There's an article that was written about a year ago, so I'm not sure how the quest is going. I haven't gotten an update on his quest But Jeff Bezos is the founder of Amazon. He's no longer with Amazon now, but he's a billionaire, one of the richest men in the world. But he's pouring millions of dollars into a company seeking the secret to eternal life. It was reported that he's gonna be a significant investor in this lab, which is an age reversal firm, which is on the scientific quest for immorality. And Bezos decided to, to quote Richard Dawkins who's this famous uh, atheist scientist in the UK, uh, during his farewell email to Amazon, he says this, starving off death is a thing that you have to work at. If living things don't actively work to prevent death, they would eventually merge with their surroundings and cease to exist as autonomous beings. This is what happens when they die. Jesus, on the contrary, says that true life comes through death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The wonder that Jesus tries to stretch us into is the wonder of death. Without death, a seed remains alone and isolated. With death, it multiplies and germinates. Winter brings forth spring. I'm gonna ask Kevin now, I have like a two minute video that I'm gonna show you, which I just found it fascinating this week. Um, so if Kevin, you could cue up this video and start playing it. And uh, it plays on this theme of death that leads to life.
2: Largest trees on earth. Sycamore they can grow for more than 3,000 years. But without fire, they cannot reproduce. The giant sequoias really are born of fire. Fire gives them three things they need for regeneration. The first one is it punches a hole in the forest. That allows there to be more light and more water for the sequoia seedlings. The second thing it does is it heats the cones up in the mature sequoia trees without harming the trees. And those cones open up. And there's a rain of seeds on the ground. thing it's done is it cleared away all the leaves that have built up because sequoia seeds need to hit bare mineral soil before they can germinate and survive well then the winter storms come in and bury them in a blanket of snow comes, they have the ideal conditions, it's warmer, it's really wet, and those seeds will take off and become seedlings. From their birth among the ashes, these seedlings have become the growth. years think of what a giant sequoia has seen you know how many times did native americans sit at the base have lunch look up and marvel at the crown of the sequoia and now we're doing it again today it's humans just living their lives under these trees for millennia
1: Trees. I think I said sycamore earlier. Sequoia trees, 3,000 years old, 300 feet tall. And I just, the reason I wanted to show you that is just to give you a glimmer of wonder in the world. Wonder of this magnificent thing of creation that comes through fire, through death, through things that would normally be seen as a disruption or danger actually brings forth magnificent, wonderful life. The wonders of the world are revealed in the life and death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The sequoia tree is one example of a wonder in the world that points to the message of what Jesus was saying. There's a man named Nicholas Herman from the previous century uh, who was an uneducated household servant from a poor family, And he was converted to the Christian faith by looking at a tree. You may say, what? It was winter and the tree was barren, but it occurred to Nicholas that the tree would grow leaves again in the spring. And this produced in him a deep sense of God's care and power. And it struck him that if God does that for trees, he would surely do that for a person. So this young man entered into a monastic community, spent his life in the kitchen as a cook and dishwasher, and all the while privately devoted his life to being with God. Today, we know this person by the name of Brother Lawrence. When he died, his friends gathered some of his letters together and turned them into a book. And the book is called The Practice of the Presence of God. It was written in the 17th century, and is now thought to be the most widely read book in the history of the human race other than the Bible. All this from an uneducated dishwasher who looked at a tree. Stretch yourself into the wonder. And part of that, you've made a good decision coming to church because I think coming to church on Resurrection Sunday in some sense stretches yourself into that wonder. And that's why Jesus then turns to each of those listening to him and he says in verse 25, if you love your life, you will lose it. But whoever hates his life, or really that means disfavors your life or disregards your life, lays your lays your life to the side. Whoever does that will keep his life, not only in this world, but for eternal life. The last point and the concluding point, which our our lady suggested strategies for surprise, is... Put yourself into spaces where anything can happen. Jesus invites us into the power of his space. That's really what the resurrection is. When he came out of the tomb, and began walking around, appearing to people again, showing them his wounds. He wasn't just there to hang out with them. He was to inviting them into his everlasting space of love to communion with the living God, to communion with the creator of wonder. It's dangerous to go into spaces where anything can happen. The lady that I mentioned, Tanya Luna, she uses the example of going to India and being on the roadways where there's rickshaws going around and taxis and buses and animals. And she said, it's crazy but it also brings you into this element of surprise. And it took her by surprise and how much she felt alive in that space. And I would say coming into a church building in the year 2022 is kind of a dangerous thing too. It's not the cultural norm anymore, at least not here, maybe in Africa it is. But here it's a little bit of a dangerous thing. How can you say Jesus is the only way? That's a dangerous claim to make. And yet it also is dangerous for Jesus to willingly walk into Jerusalem and to bear the cross. It's a dangerous thing for him to rise from the dead and to change the world in the way that he did. And so Jesus invites us into that space, not just for the sake of taking on a name Christian or to have something to do once a week, but for the sake of being transformed into experiencing life in its grand fullness And part of that is just embracing surprise. Jesus' place is a place of serving, mimicking Jesus by serving how he served, humbling yourself for the sake of the world, serving the poor, caring for the marginalized, embracing the outcast, feeding the hungry, befriending the lonely and the strange. And that's what he says in verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. To be in Jesus' space just means simply to follow after where he's going. And where does Jesus go? He goes to the margins. He goes to the dark corners. He goes to the isolated. He goes to the needy. And that's where the church goes. That's where the Christian goes. That's what the Christian life is. Jesus' space changes your life because it shows you that you can do things alongside Jesus that you normally would not do. Your life has been turned inside out. Upside down for the sake of the world, loving them with the grace of Jesus, who loved you with his amazing grace. So I just invite you to take that chance anew today, to step into that space, and to take a dangerous chance on being surprised by what Jesus can do with your extraordinary life. The last thing about surprises that both of these folks mentioned this businessman and this lady, Tanya. As they said, surprises are meant to be shared. If you're surprised by something in the world and it's changed your life, you tell other people about it, don't you? So Kevin, there's a picture um, to put on the screen. This is just the lasting image I want want you to take with you. This is a painting called The Disciples Peter and John Running to the Sepulcher on the Morning of the Resurrection by an artist named Eugene Bernand. You won't find this painting in the Louvre or in the Met or in the National Gallery. It hangs tucked away in an old railway station in Paris, now called the Musée d'Orsay on the left bank of the Seine. It was painted in 1898 by a relatively little known Swiss artist named Eugene Bernand He was something of an old-fashioned realist at the time when all the cool kids were embracing modernism, as this guy says. He says, this painting didn't make a splash when it was first hung, but today it is considered by many to be the greatest Easter painting ever made. And it hangs somewhat tucked away in obscurity in an old railway station. But this is the expression on the face of two disciples when they had heard from the women that the body of Jesus was nowhere to be found. And this is them running back to tell the disciples, he's alive. You see the look of surprise and horror and joy and fear all mixed into their face. That's the face that you and I have when we get it, when it clicks that Jesus is who he says he is. Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present, as N.T. Wright says. That's the surprise of today. Let me close us in prayer, and we'll finish by singing, Be Thou My Vision. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this amazing day to celebrate the surprise of the resurrection. Thank you for these folks who have sat here and worshiped with us, participated in this celebration. Would you bless their life today? Would you speak to them wherever they are today? Lord, encourage them by what you've done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.